What? College matters. What? College, College matters. matters. Really? For sure. College matters. Alma, Alma matters. matters. Um, and uh -huh. what I got to do, which was really, really fun, was do a uh, summer abroad study program that was uh, distributed across the Himalayas. So uh, it was in, wow. it was mm -hmm. the, the topic was Buddhist art history. I had not studied mm -hmm. Buddhism or art history, so I was wildly unqualified for the class. Um, uh -huh. But we got to travel through the very top of Northern India um, for weeks, kind of going from monastery to monastery. Connor Walsh is a graduate of Harvard University with a bachelor's degree in linguistics. Connor studied French and Chinese in high school. He loved languages, grammar, the sounds, literature, and the culture it represents. So it was no surprise that Connor wanted to go to a college that could further his love for languages. At Howard, he got much more. Connor is with us today to share his undergraduate journey through Howard. Now, before we jump into the podcast, here are the high fives, five highlights from the podcast. best way to describe Harvard, um, at least in my mind, is to imagine that you're standing under a ginormous waterfall uh -huh. um, and that you have a, one small bucket. <laughs> <laughs> and that really kind of is how it feels when you're there, that you're trying to, you know, capture whether it's knowledge or experience, relationships, you're trying to fit it all in one bucket and there is just a, a deluge um, happening. And so <laughs> First and foremost, Harvard was the cheapest option for me by far. Mm -hmm. um, so I was accepted to a number of universities, many of them kind of in the same tier and level of competitiveness, competitiveness as Harvard, but mm -hmm. it cost me less to attend Harvard than it would have to attend like the local state university um, mm -hmm. in Massachusetts. To that on academics, like I said, I was fortunate where the kind of core of the academic work felt you know, write to me after the high school experience I had had. But those two things, figuring out how to, how to really participate in these newer, smaller seminar settings, and then mm -hmm. understanding kind of the bureaucracy um, and timeline of a lot of the, the academic system was, they were both new for me. I took a lot of yeah. classes in a very narrow context, specifically linguistics mm -hmm. and Celtic languages and literatures. Um, both mm -hmm. of which were wonderful. The teachers and the faculty there um, remain mm -hmm. remain a presence in my life. I'm still in touch with, you know, many of the folks who who instructed me, um, and that's that's a really important part I think of mm -hmm. of my experience there. And these institutions are yes, you know, they are important. I am like I said before, I'm very grateful that I got to attend Harvard, but it certainly wouldn't be worthwhile if I felt like I had to bury who I was just to have the mm -hmm. right application. And in fact, I tend to think that the, the applications that stand out and the, the profiles that stand out mm -hmm. are mm -hmm. the ones that are most authentic. Now, I'm sure you want to hear the entire podcast with Connor. So without further ado, over to Connor Walsh. Hi, Vinka. Hey, Connor. <clears throat> How you doing? Doing well, doing well. And you? 
I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Is my audio and stuff okay? Uh, sounds great. Sounds great. Perfect. So let me just start by welcoming you to our podcast, College Matters, Alma Matters. Um, thank you so much for making the time today. Thank you. So as we chatted, um, we want to kind of talk about your Harvard undergraduate experience and um, our audience is mainly, at this point, international students, um, hopefully looking to study in the U.S. And um, I think stories like these are extremely beneficial and useful for their uh, preparation. So thank you again for doing this. Yeah, happy to be here. Very well. So let's sort of jump in and maybe we can start with sort of your overall impressions. I know it's been a few years since you graduated from Howard, but uh, looking back, how did it feel overall? Yeah, it's a great question. And I'll say I graduated from Harvard College back in 2012. So it's, uh -huh. it's crazy to me how much time has gone by since then. But, um, you know, as I think back to what, what those years were like, I mean, my overall impression, I think the best way to describe Harvard um, at least in my mind, is to imagine that you're standing under a ginormous waterfall uh -huh. um, and that you have a, one small bucket. <laughs> and that really kind of is how it feels when you're there, that you're trying to, you know, capture whether it's knowledge or experience, relationships, you're trying to fit it all in one bucket and there is just a, a deluge um, happening. And so that's really exciting. Uh -huh. there's so There's so much to do and so much to see. And that also can have drawbacks, right? It can be an overwhelming kind of uh, completely uh, enormous space to find yourself in. And I, I think I've had moments where each of those things felt true, where I felt like there was an embarrassment of riches and I felt <laughs> totally overwhelmed by, you know, all the things to do, all the choices I could make. No, that's a great image. Never uh, heard that before, but it is really apt. So... So, Connor, I assume you had a bunch of choices, so it'd be kind of interesting to hear why you picked Howard. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, for me, there were a few kind of intangibles, and then there were there was a lot of tangible. So I'll start with the tangible. Sure. Um, first and foremost, Harvard was the cheapest option for me by far. Mm -hmm. um, so I was accepted to a number of universities many of them kind of in the same tier and level of competitiveness, competitiveness as Harvard, but mm -hmm. it cost me less to attend Harvard than it would have to attend like the local state university um, mm -hmm. in Massachusetts. And so mm -hmm. from just the dollars and cents perspective, there was no, there was no question that Harvard would be a great place to go. Uh -huh. um, uh, so that, that's kind of the tangible on the intangible side though, um, there were so many compelling reasons to go. I mean, one, I knew I wanted to be in a larger kind of open-ended environment. And, mm -hmm. you know, compared to some smaller schools I had looked at, Harvard was a, a really good balance between not too, too big, not an overwhelming 30,000 plus undergraduate experience, uh -huh. um, but also much bigger than some of the smaller liberal arts colleges I had looked at where classes are, you know, maybe 400 per year. Um, mm -hmm. So I knew I wanted something in that inner, in that in-between spot. Harvard definitely checked that off. Um, but I also wanted to go to a place that had resources where I, you know, would never question whether or not the things I wanted to explore, the questions I wanted to ask would have, you know, backing to them where I'd be able to actually dig in and either find people, find mm -hmm. resources, find books even 
um, to understand the questions I had. And, and that's kind of the other piece that I, I knew even going into Harvard that I had some pretty targeted interests. And mm -hmm. Harvard was one of the few places in the United States where I would be able to even pursue those in the first place. So that was kind of the last thing that made it really, really easy for me to decide to go. Maybe let's talk a little bit about your high school interests. You mentioned some targeted interests, but what all did you do in high school? Yeah, yeah. So I went to a high school in Boston, actually not too, too far away from Harvard, just kind of down the subway line from where Harvard mm -hmm. is. Um, and so I, knew, I kind of was in Boston, was in the same environment as Harvard. Um, the things that I like to study or the things that kind of compelled me when I was uh, in school really circled around language. So mm -hmm. I loved foreign languages in high school. I loved um, being exposed to them. I loved their grammar. I loved the sounds. I took um, both French and Chinese during high school. And when I was learning Chinese, I really enjoyed the writing system and all the mm -hmm. intricacies there. With French, I loved the literature and understanding more about French culture. And so I got all of that in high school. And that was kind of my big, the big area of study that I, that I cared a lot about. Um, sure. I was also involved in, you know, a bunch of a bunch of different clubs as many high school students are but i think the things that really stood out um i was in our our high school's band so i played mm -hmm. um at football games and i played in you know the spring concerts and things like that um mm -hmm. which was a lot of fun and then the other thing i was really interested in was uh irish literature and my high school sure. had a kind of particular focus on irish literature and irish writing um and i was really curious about that as well. And so when I was thinking about Harvard, you know, I really kind of was making the jump and saying, okay, I want to study more about the Irish language, Irish culture, and I can do that at Harvard, but I also want to keep studying all of the languages that I love so much, and I can do that there too. Um, and Irish in particular as a language, and I'm sure we'll touch upon this later, is sure. not widely taught. Harvard is one of the few programs in the United States where you can study the language in any form. And most schools only have maybe a year of Irish. Harvard at the time had three. Um, mm -hmm. So I was able to go a lot deeper into that topic. And that's kind of what brought me when I was even even in high school thinking about where I wanted to end up. I was I, I considered Harvard in part because it had access to this language that I otherwise would have a, would have had a hard time studying. So now let's let's sort of now actually get to Harvard. So you make your move from high school to Harvard. How was that whole transition? And um, maybe start with the academics and we can work our way through the rest. Yeah, sure. I mean, of course, it's always a big transition um, going mm -hmm. from high school experience to a university experience. I mean, I think the things that I encountered will be pretty familiar to, to most people. One, learning how to manage my time. I suddenly mm -hmm. had dramatically more time than I had had in high school. My high school experience was... <laughs> was very, very jam-packed. Um, and so days were highly, highly structured. In college, um, I could set my schedule for myself. I could choose my hours. I could choose you know, when I saw people, what activities I did. And so I had to learn how to navigate all of that. Um, and mm -hmm. it was a big transition. Academically, of course, there's also a transition from high school to, to university. And I think for me, I was very fortunate. Um, I went to a high school that in many ways prepared me very well uh, for mm -hmm. the university setting and the university experience, but I still struggled. I had not spent a lot of time in really small seminar type classes. 
Um, mm-hmm. And that is an environment that, you know, I, I really tend to associate it with like very, very elite high schools. And so when you come to college, unless you haven't been part of that ecosystem, it can be really hard to learn how to participate. Um, and so for me, that's something I really had to, to kind of come to terms with. What does it mean to be a good uh, contributor in these smaller settings where it isn't just a matter of knowing the information or knowing the fact, but really synthesizing your learnings, synthesizing arguments, and in doing so in a way that brings your classmates into the discussion. Um, that mm-hmm. for me was a was definitely a transition. And many of my courses at Harvard throughout my years there were in kind of smaller settings. And mm-hmm. so, you know, having to com- figure that out even from the very first day, it was a, it was a good experience to have because it it set me up for the rest of my time. So I think that's that's one area where academics was an interesting transition. I think another was just figuring out what are all the courses I should take? You know, when you're in uh-huh. high school, you know, even the best high school will have a, a relatively, you know, small number of available courses, but suddenly sure. I could figure out, you know, I have my requirements. I don't yet have a major or at Harvard, we call it a concentration. I don't have a concentration right. yet. Um, uh-huh. So what exactly should I do? And there were, there were freshman advisors who could help with that, but I'll be, mm-hmm. I'll be really honest. My, mine was not very good. <laughs> um, and if you think about it, you know, I think my freshman advisor had at least two or three other um, freshmen that they were working with, but they really didn't have the time to, to kind of get to know you and really understand sure. what were all your interests and motivations. And in many ways too, when you're, just coming out, coming into college, you don't really know yourself. Um, yeah, and yeah. So for me, I felt like I had to figure a lot of that out on my own. Um, and where this became important was, you know, oftentimes, and I assume this is true beyond just uh, Harvard, often a class might not be offered, you know, for another year or another two mm-hmm. years. And so for mm-hmm. me, because I had these very you know, kind of targeted niche interests, I, even from freshman year, had to try to figure out, okay, well, if I want to take these classes in the right sequence, should I Mm -hmm. take them this year or should I wait till next year? What should I do? Um, And so kind of navigating the bureaucracy of even figuring out what classes to take was was an interesting challenge. Um, Yeah, I think those were kind of the big things that stood out on academics. Like I said, I was fortunate where the kind of core of the academic work felt, you know, right to me after the high school experience I had had. But those two things, figuring out how to how to really participate in these newer, smaller seminar settings, and then mm-hmm. understanding kind of the bureaucracy um, and timeline of a lot of the, the academic system was, they were both new for me. Um, how'd you feel about your classmates? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's hard to, it's, it's, it's hard to make it concise, but I think that, <laughs> You know, your peers at Harvard in the classroom and outside of the classroom are certainly what makes that experience as rich as it is. And for me, you know, I was very fortunate that, like I said, I was in a lot of these smaller classrooms. A lot of the classes I were in, I would have a lot of the same people in them. And so you got to know people pretty well. And mm-hmm. I was always very humbled <laughs> by just how <laughs> prodigiously intelligent my classmates were. It was simultaneously amazing to be in their company and often very, very intimidating and scary. Sure. <laughs> um, sure. And certainly a feeling that I've had at Harvard and I'm sure many, many folks do when they're starting out was, you know, a keen, a keen sense of imposter syndrome, right? You're in these classrooms, yes. you're in these settings yes. with folks who are, who are very, very talented and are many times very confident in that talent. 
Um, uh -huh. And so kind of seeing that happen in real time, debating with that, learning when to jump in, um, it can it can be pretty scary. But I think what's what's great about the residential setting that Harvard's in is that, OK, sure, those are my classmates in the classroom setting, but I'd see them outside of class. Right. I'd see them in sure, dorms. Sure. I'd see them in activities and clubs and the hallways um, in the laundry room even. And I felt like that having both of those things, having kind of like the the on version of people and the off version of people really <laughs> yeah. it's really eye-opening you see oh okay this person is like really really good at you know physics but they don't know how to do their laundry <laughs> <laughs> um and that I, I i think i really gained an appreciation for okay like this is a, a multifaceted experience where i will see people in a lot of different ways i mean this was my first time you know living outside of my home and so i hadn't lived with you know, a cohort of people before. And it was really, really fascinating to see that play out. And I think my peers, yes, always impressed me when it comes to, when it came to academics and their, their intelligence. But I think the thing that really gives me warm feelings about Harvard is how kind and thoughtful and, and really just generous so many of those people were with me and with the community at large. So, you know, finding, okay, this person who might've seemed really intimidating is actually really excited to help me or we can help each other or we can, you know, become friends despite not really sharing many, many similarities. I think all of that is kind of core to that academic and, and, and kind of collegiate experience at Harvard. So how did you kind of overcome this imposter syndrome or did you, you know, how did you manage it, I guess? Yeah. So, so uh, does, does, does one ever fully overcome it? I'm not sure. But, I don't know. but <laughs> I, think, I think what helped for me, and I can only speak to my, my own experience, sure. but I think what helped, for, what helped me at Harvard in particular was kind of investing very early and finding the communities that, that would really make me feel like a part of, of Harvard. And so that uh -huh. took a couple different shapes. I think academically, um, uh -huh. as, as kind of alluded to, I was really curious about languages. And so I found my way to the linguistics department. I found my way to the Celtic languages and literatures departments at Harvard. Those are two of the smallest departments at a very large university. And so I think for me, without necessarily making a conscious decision, but just kind of following my interests and following uh, you know, the questions that I had, I ended up in places that were a lot smaller than a large university would typically have. And so I was with the same faculty, I was with the same classmates. And I think that that helped me kind of experiment and learn and grow in an environment that felt a little bit more like home or a little bit safer than, you know, a large 800 person lecture hall. Um, and so I think that was a big piece of it. The other piece of it was finding mentors, right? So finding folks who yeah, had yeah. been through the same experiences I had or who were interested in the same questions I had. And that, that happened both academically, but also with my, you know, extracurricular activities. I was really involved in some of the service work that Harvard does. And so I would talk to folks who had, maybe they'd gone to Harvard or they were working in the fields that I cared about. And we could, I could see, okay, this is what, this is what it would look like to have your job, or this is what it would look like to follow your, your course mm -hmm. of study. And I can take that and do with it what I want. And if I have questions or if I, I'm unsure about something, I, I still can go to this small group setting where I feel very safe and where I trust everybody to start actually exploring those questions or asking, you know, asking for feedback even. Um, so I think that was kind of my approach was like seeking out mentorship and finding communities that, that I felt mapped onto what I needed at the time.
Very well. So how, how did you find the teaching in general, the professors, um, how were the classes? Yeah, I mean, it, it really depends. There's a huge, it's a wide experience there, right? So like I said, I took a lot of yeah. classes in a very narrow context, specifically linguistics mm-hmm. and Celtic languages and literatures, um, both mm-hmm. of which were wonderful. The teachers and the faculty there um, remain mm-hmm. remain a presence in my life. I'm still in touch with you know, many of the folks who, who instructed me. Um, and that's, that's a really important part, I think, of, mm-hmm. of my experience there. But, um, you know, there's, a, there's a huge range, right? Your, your classes can take any number of shapes. And so, you know, I took a few really large lecture classes often to fulfill a requirement um, for graduation. Mm-hmm. And the quality of that instruction could vary, right? I think often the, sure. the lectures were very good, but you know, everyone is learning. And so we had, you know, TAs who would, you know, some were great, some were learning how to teach for the first time. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think what I gravitated towards and where the experience was really rich were in these smaller seminar type classes where, you know, I would be in these small groups and there you have instructors who are very passionate about the topic. And to be totally honest, Mm -hmm. the kids who are showing up for a obscure linguistics class or an even more, you know, in the weeds um, Irish manuscript class, right? Those folks are all, those students are also very engaged in these topics. They're not taking the class just to take a class. Um, right. And so I think that really built my kind of default experience as an undergrad was to be in a small classroom with a teacher who was very, very passionate about the topic that they were covering um, and students who are also really, really passionate about that topic. And honestly, I think that's a little atypical at Harvard. Um, I don't think <laughs> most people yeah. would have found themselves in such kind of concentrated, dense environments where the academic experience was so central to people's kind of space at Harvard. Um, so for me, you know, the class experience and the quality of instruction, it, it always felt very high. Um, uh-huh. But I think that's because I was in these environments where my classes were very, very small and the faculty were very, very focused on, the, on that specific field of study. Okay, so let's sort of move out of the classrooms and talk a little bit about the campus life. Maybe we could start with the residential and then talk about cultural, social. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think I think Harvard's residential system is one of the more unique aspects of the undergraduate experience. So your freshman year, you're put into a uh, a dorm in usually in Harvard Yard or kind of at the core main part of the campus. Um, mm-hmm. And I think for, I wouldn't say this is true for everybody, but certainly this was true in my experience. That freshman dorm can become a really powerful, you know, social experience as well. So, you know, you're, mm-hmm. you have your roommates, you have uh, usually like the rooms are organized around an entryway system. So you'll have, you know, maybe five or 10 different uh, rooms that are associated with an entryway and that entryway can sort of become a social unit. Um, so freshman year, you know, the, the, the residential system is one where, you know, you're very, very close with this, with this group of people and m- maybe you bond with sure. them, maybe you don't. Um, uh-huh. The standard of the dorms, I think were pretty good. I was, I was pretty happy with where, with where I lived. Um, uh-huh. And then of course you have just one, large dining hall for freshmen and for freshmen only really so 
that kind of became a central place as well, where you would see everybody who wasn't in your, your dorm room or your entryway. That was kind of the common mm-hmm. place to find people. Um, things get a lot different and honestly even more fun uh, for the next few years. So after mm-hmm. you are a freshman, you are placed into one of 12, I believe, undergraduate houses. Um, mm-hmm. And those houses are kind of self-contained residential colleges. They have their own dining mm-hmm. halls. They have their own, uh, obviously, their own dorm rooms and things. But they have kind of all of their own facilities so that they are independent. Um, and you generally, not everybody, but you generally stay in your house for the next three years, for the remainder of your time mm-hmm. at Harvard. And you can elect, I think when I was an undergrad, it was up to eight people, but maybe that's wrong. <laughs> I don't remember. Um, <laughs> but you could have like, yeah, I think up to eight people who you would join with from your freshman year. Uh, and then you would, you could ensure that you were all placed into the same house together. Um, uh-huh. You can't choose the house itself, but you could choose that group to, to have with you. Okay. Um, and so what ends up happening is that, you know, not only does each house have its own you know, facilities and independent kind of resources, it also is administered independently. So there are traditions that are unique to each house. There's like a, a mm-hmm. social committee for each house and you can take part in that and they throw parties and host events and have, you know, all kinds of clubs and speakers and uh, any number of things. And, and I think for most people who attend Harvard for undergrad, their house experience becomes kind of synonymous with what it meant to attend Harvard. So in my case, uh-huh. I was in um, a house called Cabot House, which was up mm-hmm. kind of at the top of campus, uh, a little uh-huh. bit separated from some of the others. And the the friends who I made in Cabot House continue to be kind of my core group. When I think of you know when I think of what it was like to go to Harvard, I really associate that time with being in Cabot House and with the people who lived in Cabot House with me. Um, that's kind mm-hmm. of the the core experience. And, and honestly, the facilities, I think, have been updated tremendously even since I was there. They've gone through and renovated, uh-huh. I think, every house or maybe almost every house. I don't know. Um, but mm-hmm. even at the time, I thought the, the facilities were really excellent. You know, I think I only shared a room my freshman year. After that, I always had a single. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, the quality of the space was, was very good. The standard of the dining hall and stuff was all quite nice. Um, and of course, the grounds are kept beautifully and, and whatnot. So, Overall, you know, I think the residential experience I thought was was quite positive. But, you know, I know that not everybody, I think, feels at home in that house system. And I, mm-hmm. I think it can be hard if you don't feel at home in it to, to make it work. There are opportunities to transfer from one house to the other. And there's a couple other alternative living arrangements, as I recall. But, you know, I think I think it's an experience where if it works for you, great. If it doesn't work for you, there's not there's not a ton of recourse. How was the cultural scene? I mean, cultural activities and clubs and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, uh, there it's an enormous, like I said, Harvard is you running around with a bucket as a kind of <laughs> ginormous waterfall <laughs> lands on top of you. So I couldn't even pretend to capture the whole spectrum of it. But you know, I, I have no idea how many clubs there are uh, for students. It, it seemed like if you had an interest, there was a club for it or a team or a sport or a group. Um Sure. And, you know, sky's the limit really on what you can do. So like, you know, I think in terms of like cultural activities, what I liked about cultural activities at Harvard is that they always seemed really open. So for example, there was like a South Asian dance um, show that would happen every year. 
And, you know, mm-hmm. obviously a lot of kids from South Asian backgrounds who had training and knew what they were doing right. <laughs> would, would kind of drive it and, and really kind of lead it. But folks who didn't like myself were really encouraged to participate. And, you know, a lot of my friends did things like that, which I think kind of made their world a little bit bigger and opened their eyes a bit, um, which was very, very exciting. You know, I think I think in terms of culture overall, like Harvard is this interesting space where there's definitely a sense of tradition. You know, Harvard's been around for a, for a pretty long time. Um, there's yeah. definitely an understanding that, you know, things can be done a certain way. And this really shows up around like kind of the annual traditions that that are kind of sequenced along the course of a year, whether it's the various like formal events that would happen each year, whether it's um, kind of holiday parties and holiday traditions. You know, I think one thing that, mm-hmm that matters to people at Harvard a great deal is that it's not so much an adherence to tradition for tradition's sake, but definitely an understanding that you're participating in a tradition. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that that can be both uh, a space that feels inclusive for folks, but also definitely in the case of Harvard, a space that can feel exclusive and hard to tap into. A lot of these traditions come from a time where you know, Harvard was a really different institution where many yeah. different types of people would have struggled to, to be admitted, let right. alone successfully attend. Um, and I think that that memory weighs on people a bit. And so I kind of, when I think about the cultural scene at Harvard, I, I simultaneously think of one that's really open and really vibrant. And then mm-hmm. there's always kind of this, this tension with these traditions that, you know, predate everybody at the university and yet seem to persist. And I, I know that that even shows up in different um, undergraduate organizations. I think most famously and maybe most controversially, the final clubs. I was definitely <laughs> not in a final club and really not part of that community whatsoever. Um, but uh-huh. I know that that was something that was constantly being debated and discussed. And, and honestly, I think folks, you know, I think the university has stepped away even further from these final clubs, which I personally think was the right decision. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, how, how you adjudicate those student experiences is really, really tricky at a space like Harvard, where on the one hand, like I said, you know, folks are, it's an incredibly diverse environment in the 21st century. It's really different. It's, it's very large, but you have to balance this like weird, often very kind of conservative voice that upholds these traditions that don't necessarily make sense or are very exclusionary. So I, I think Harvard has a bit of an identity crisis when it comes to that. I'm not sure if they've ever resolved it or if they ever will. What kind of things did you do? I mean, um, how did you spend your time outside of class? Yeah, there were a few things that, that I spent the majority of my time doing. So, and I think what, what happens, uh, what, I ha- what happened to me is very similar to what happens to a lot of people where you start off trying a number of different activities and kind of hone in on a mm-hmm. couple that, that you really care about. And in my case, those were, I think, really like three um, and probably first mm-hmm. among them was working at the Harvard Square Homeless Shelter. So this was mm-hmm. it's very cool. This is an entirely student-run homeless shelter uh, in, in mm-hmm. Harvard Square, where unsurprisingly Harvard is located. Mm-hmm. Um, but you get to really run all aspects of this homeless shelter. And what that means is, yeah, sure, at the top, figuring out... <laughs> you know, what is the budget for the year? Or what are what do I need to do to be legally compliant? Um, how do we serve mm-hmm. as many homeless guests as we can? What are our, what are our mm-hmm. rules and policy? You get to kind of make all those decisions. 
but then you also mm-hmm. <laughs> you also get to see how that plays out in everyday practice because you're saying okay well you know we need to have a, a, a process for cleaning the bathrooms or doing all the laundry or organizing you know the entry to the homeless shelter and I have to do that too and so you know for me it was this really amazing experience of on the one hand getting to do direct service um, and on the other mm-hmm. hand really learning about the operation of an idea like a homeless shelter um, and I think that this was particularly mm-hmm. important because you know, one thing that really struck me and one of the reasons I was quite called to this as an undergrad is that it, it, it really seemed to me absolutely bizarre that a university like Harvard, which I don't know what the endowment is now, but I think at the time it was, you know, $35 billion or some, you know, absolutely obscene, yeah. <laughs> obscene figure. Um, you know, it struck me as absolutely unconscionable that an institution with so many resources and so much wealth would allow people to sleep in its neighborhood outside. Um, and, and so yeah. for me, like the, the dissonance between this institution and this reality, I think really drew me to the homeless shelter. And it was a place where I made a you know, tremendous number of really, really close friends. It really set the trajectory mm-hmm. for how I think about work environments and the professional experiences I look out for. And I think that's really interesting because that wasn't on my mind as an undergrad, but I kind of come back and think about it from time to time. And I realized that it had a, a great impact. So that's one thing I did. Um, sure. Another activity that I cared a great deal about actually mostly happened in the summer, but had mm-hmm. a kind of term time component to it as well, uh, which was mm-hmm. a program called the Crimson Summer Academy, which partnered with local high schools um, and basically mm-hmm. worked with very talented folks from like high school students from the Boston and Cambridge areas um, and we basically ran a summer school program for them uh, with the very, mm-hmm. very explicit goal of getting these students not only into a top university or college, but also mm-hmm. through mm-hmm. through a top university. So not just getting you in, but getting you through. And, and that required a great deal of mentorship. I got to work really closely with really inspiring high school students. Um, I got to learn mm-hmm. a lot about education, even in my own city, which I wasn't always familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, so I loved that. Mm-hmm. The other thing I did, I worked quite closely um, and helped run an, a pre-orientation program for freshmen, which I think is a, the program I did was called the First Year Urban Program, or FUP. Um, and there mm-hmm. are several uh, uh, programs for incoming freshmen at Harvard that take place the, usually the, the week or two before classes start. This one was focused on community mm-hmm. service, um, and you would bring freshmen together. You would place them at different nonprofits across the city for a week, where they would commit, uh, where they would complete service projects for those organizations. And so, I because I, I did that program myself as a first year, and it was really mm-hmm. wonderful. Um, and so, I wanted to kind of help help that program continue. So I did that. So those were kind of the activities I did, but actually I spent a lot of time in undergrad working. So I didn't, mm. I didn't come to Harvard with too much money. My family, I didn't, didn't grow up, you know, in particularly dire straits, but we definitely didn't have any extra spending money lying around. And even from a, from a pretty mm-hmm. young age, I was very responsible for my own kind of financial decisions. And so at Harvard, you know, mm-hmm. I got there and it's an institution where, you know, honestly, at the time, I, I assume it's changed a bit, but I think 40% of students or some, some figure like that, you can, you can check me and leave it in the podcast notes. Um, at the time, I think like 40% of students received no financial aid to attend a university that mm. cost well over, you know, $50,000, $60,000 a year. I was not one of those students. Sure. <laughs> so 
I ended up needing to work like several part-time jobs so I could feel like I could take part in kind of life on campus, um, whether that was going out to restaurants or going to concerts or shows or traveling with friends. All of that took money. So I spent actually a fair bit of my time in a given week at any number of jobs. And you know, I did jobs that were very interesting and I did jobs that were maybe less interesting, but I always kind of had one or two jobs running so that I could kind of f- finance my lifestyle uh, as impoverished as it was. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I mean, it sounds like you were super busy, um, at least just listening to, but, but I, uh, but I find your, um, your work with the homeless shelter, the, the urban program and the summer ac- academy really, really, you know, very uplifting and very positive. So those were fantastic things to be involved in. Now, did did you have time to do something different in summers or were these programs, a couple of these, uh, your summer sort of experiences yeah, as well? Yeah, so I had three summers at Harvard. The first two um, were very much taken up by those programs. I mentioned the Crimson Summer Academy and the first yeah. year urban program. I stayed on campus to help organize the first year urban program. But then I also, the mm-hmm. Crimson Summer Academy, like I said, ran throughout the summer. So that was kind of my main my main activity for both the summer after my freshman year and the summer after my um, sophomore year, because in both cases, Mm -hmm. you know, you got to do this really cool work, but I also got paid for my work, which was great. And I got free Mm -hmm. housing, which was great. And I got to take a free summer school class, which was great because that saved me um, credits for the Uh future. So it was a really great opportunity. Like I said, the kids who were, who took part in this program were absolutely inspiring. And I love, I really loved those summers. Um, my last summer, the summer after my junior year, um, I, uh-huh. I I knew I did not want to be in Boston for another summer. I knew I really wanted to travel. I hadn't really had a chance to study abroad all that much. Um, and so I knew that that was something I very much wanted to do. And <laughs> to be super honest, I wanted to see, like, what is the biggest trip I could get Harvard to pay for? <laughs> that was, <laughs> I wish I had maybe a more high-minded um <laughs> approach but I was I was pretty extractive I want I, I kind of asked myself like what what is the craziest thing I could get away with um and uh-huh. what I got to do which was really really fun was do a uh, summer abroad study program that was uh, distributed across the Himalayas so uh, it was in wow. it was mm-hmm. the, the topic was Buddhist art history I had not studied mm-hmm. Buddhism or art history so I was wildly unqualified for it the class, um, uh-huh. but we got to travel through the very top of Northern India um, for weeks, kind of going from monastery to monastery up in Ladakh and just like yeah. seeing this absolutely beautiful part of the world, um, learning about art and the culture and religion of a region that I had never been exposed to. I'd never traveled to India before, let alone this very remote part of India. Um, and then I also had like an internship in the second half of the summer. So I started, I spent most of my summer up at the very, very top of India, um, and Mm -hmm. then took a train (laughs) all the way down to (laughs) Chennai, which is pretty close to the bottom, um, where I had, uh, an internship there as well. So for me, that was kind of my wild summer before my last year at Harvard, um, and I was very, very grateful I got to do it. It was a really, really wonderful experience. And again, <laughs> I got Harvard to pay for it, which was the best part of it all. Um, 
so what what was this internship about oh um, that yeah you did? i was working at a um kind of like a human resources consulting firm like a sort of skill development firm for uh indian employees who i think were interested in kind of either starting their own businesses or beginning kind of the journey to work with a western company or to manage projects kind of on standards that that folks outside of india could relate to so that was kind of interesting. I'll be very honest. It was not my focus for the summer. Yeah, I was pretty excited about being in Chennai, which was wonderful. Um, and just seeing a new part of India. But that was, yes, I'll say that that was my, my nominal internship. So let's come back to Howard. And I'm really interested in talking a little bit about your interest in linguistics you know, how that came about, I know you studied two languages, two quite different languages in high school, and then, you know, uh, at Harvard. So how did all that come about, and uh, where did that passion for languages come from, you think? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, to take the second part of it first, I think my mm -hmm. interest in language, uh, it's really hard to identify the the moment where it begins, but if it was ever catalyzed in one place, it was definitely in high school. I, I was very fortunate to have really excellent language instruction in high school. And I, I got to really, for the first time in my life, feel comfortable, um, not necessarily living my whole life through another language, but just having that experience of realizing that I could express myself um, in an entirely different system. That was always really, really magical for me as a, as a kid. Um, and then when I was in high school, my high school had this very, very cool uh, study abroad program. And so I got to spend the summer when I was in high school in, in China, in Beijing with a family. Um, and mm -hmm. that was, you know, you talk about mind opening experiences. I think that was one of the most impactful things I had ever done. Um, and maybe to this day mm -hmm. I've ever done in my life was just to spend, you know, a time outside the country. I'd never been on a plane before. I'd never been outside the United States before. Um, and so my, my kind of first experience internationally was in China, which is about as different uh, from the U.S. as you can get. Sure. And so that, that was a really, really wild experience and reinforced for me just how cool um, seeing the world through a different language could be. So when I, came to, when I went to mm -hmm. Harvard, I, I didn't know that I wanted to do linguistics. I actually thought that I was going to somehow, <laughs> I was going to somehow double major in French and Chinese and I think I wanted to get uh -huh. my, my minor, which I think at Harvard is called the secondary field, in Celtic languages. So I basically wanted to study all the languages I was interested in, and maybe more. Uh -huh. <laughs> and I very quickly realized that, you know, doing a double major or joint concentration at Harvard is, I think, fairly challenging, especially if the, if the fields are not tightly related. Um, but, on, but on top right. of that, so I kind of could not figure out how I was possibly going to make this all happen in a schedule <laughs> that I was going to be able to survive. But on top of all of that, uh -huh. I think what I realized when I came to university was that the things that I loved about French and Chinese and would come to love about Irish and some of the other languages I got a chance to study was not necessarily the languages mm -hmm. themselves specifically and only, but rather I was, mm -hmm. I was really captivated by the idea of language as systems and language as a system for thought and really like using uh -huh. language as a way to probe, you know, how does the human mind work? How does, cog what does cognition look like? Um, and and mm -hmm. it very quickly became apparent that linguistics was going to be a great way 
to satisfy that interest and to ask not just the what, which I feel like a lot of times language classes are like the what is this language and how does it work, but rather what is a language? What is the concept of language? How does that system work? That for me was really, really captivating. It didn't hurt mm -hmm. that at least Harvard's program was also very flexible. So the linguistics mm -hmm. program, as you might expect, requ requires you to study multiple languages. Um, but they're very mm -hmm. agnostic about what those languages are. And so for me, I mm -hmm. thought that was just great because, you know, I could find a way to study languages to the depth and with the you know, amount of rigor that I wanted, but I wasn't locked into the rest of a major in that language. So for example, you know, sure. I really did love French literature, but I realized that I didn't want to only think about French literature or I really loved, uh -huh. you know, Chinese grammar, but I only, I didn't want to only think about Chinese grammar. And so linguistics kind of gave me the flexibility to study all the different things I was interested in. And particularly that's this interest in the Irish language, which really didn't have uh, an undergraduate program that I could associate it with. There wasn't an undergraduate um, degree available. And so linguistics kind of became my vehicle to, to work on that issue as well. So you did a thesis at the end of it, um, which I don't, I cannot quite uh, sort of understand. So explain <laughs> in layman terms what you tried to do sure, with the thesis. Sure. So, so yeah, I mean, my thesis kind of maps my relationship with linguistics and actually my academic interests writ large and kind of where they started versus where they ended up. So where they started and what I've mm -hmm. mostly talked about with mm -hmm. you is, you know, being really excited about French and Chinese and mentioning that also excited right. about this Irish language thing. My thesis, yeah. which I'll see if I can remember the title off the top of my head, I think it was called A Theoretical Critique of Contemporary Language Policy in the Republic of Ireland, something like that. Um, yes, <laughs> close. Yeah. Um, you know, how did, what, what is that about? And so my thesis, so I guess the quick journey here is that as I studied the Irish language more and more, um, and for mm -hmm. folks who are not familiar with the Irish language, you know, it's a Celtic language. It has a lot of really um, unique syntactic and morphological features, which make it makes it from a linguistics perspective, really, really interesting. It behaves in ways that are kind of unexpected, especially for languages that are centered in Europe. It's really, really kind of out there. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was kind of my first, the first kind of intellectual challenge of the Irish language was how does this language work? Um, but... Mm -hmm what really started to captivate me after I kind of had the basics of, of Irish down was well, who speaks Irish today? <laughs> Why did they speak it? You know, yeah. the Irish language, and I will, I'll spare you and everybody um, the, the super long history of this, but the Irish language today is the official language of the Republic of Ireland, but there's only uh -huh. about 70,000 people who speak it as their first language. Um, and Ireland's a small mm -hmm. country, but it's got a lot more than 70,000 people in it. Um, yes, exactly. And so I was really curious as to, you know, why was there an island off on its own in the ocean uh, where uh -huh. a language had progressively died out? What, what, and it hasn't died out yet, um, and I hope it certainly right. doesn't, but where the, the overall number of speakers had really shrunk. Um, yeah. And I was really, really curious about this. And so first that took me into, you know, understanding colonialism and understanding the history of the language. Um, and I mean, surprise, surprise, the, the impact of English colonialism <laughs> is, is kind of the key factor in uh, changes to the linguistic landscape of Ireland, no surprise. But 
Um, yeah. You know, I got really interested in what, when we think about language, the Irish government had worked on reviving the use of Irish as a kind of language for, for daily life for almost 90 years, you know, basically since, mm-hmm. since the Irish free state was established, there have been movements to revive this language. And I was curious, well, how come it hasn't worked yet? <laughs> it's yeah. taking so long. Um, and that, that kind of was the kernel that became this thesis. Um, so what I ended up focusing mm-hmm. on was specific legislation and policy that it was in place in the Republic of Ireland to promote the Irish language. And I sort of took that, that policy and tried to figure out, okay, what are the what, what theoretical perspective on language and language shift, which is the kind of academic term for the, the movement of a group from one language to the other, um, what uh-huh. is going on here, right? Like how, how did we come up with these policies in the first place? And, and if we're not happy with the policies or we're not happy with the outcome of the policies, what are some of the alternatives we might suggest? And what body of knowledge do we even have as a, as a global community who cares about this topic? What, what do we even know about effective language uh-huh. policy? And you know, it, for me, it was really notable that there are almost no examples of a successful language revitalization movement. There's maybe one, um, which is the, re- the revival of Hebrew, but there's a lot of kind of very specific uh, sure, asterisks sure. and caveats that go with that. Um, and so I was kind of curious, you know, the Irish example has, is one of the most kind of studied and longitudinally one of the most uh, developed of these movements. And it also hasn't been particularly successful. Um, and so I got, got curious about that and said, well, I want to, you know, spend some time looking at the current state of things in, in the Republic of Ireland and, you know, what do we know about what makes for good language policy and where is there daylight between the current policy that exists and kind of the idealized policy that we think we understand. And that was my senior thesis. No, that sounds like a, no, it sounds like a right question. So did you have any, was this a survey or did you have any uh, takeaways or? Yeah, um, it's been a minute since I looked at that thesis, but <laughs> um, you know, I, I think what I, one of, the, one of the kind of key takeaways that I took from, from really all of my study of endangered language policy, both at the undergraduate and graduate level, um, is that it takes a lot of resources and it takes a lot of commitment at yeah. all levels of government and stakeholder um, to really effectively implement a language policy. You know, there's a belief that some folks hold that there's always an implicit language policy, right? We're speaking English on this call because yeah, we yeah. kind of agreed that English is the language we're going to use. Um, so that happens informally all the time. But when you're going to try to formalize it, you really need, you know, a tremendous degree of dedication to doing just that. So in Ireland, you know, constantly really good ideas um, and really kind of well-intentioned ideas have been waylaid by either a lack of resources, a lack of follow-through, or just kind of an internalized inertia towards acting on this topic, towards really taking the steps needed to to protect this language and, and protect the communities that use it. So, you know, it's it's a complicated question um, and one that I think we could send certainly multiple podcasts on if you ever really wanted to know. Um, but it's it's something where getting the opportunity to look at that as an undergrad really set me up to think about a lot of the choices I wanted to make later on in my career, which was actually very helpful. Um, Yeah. 
I'm going to move forward a little bit and just have you reflect on how you think uh, Howard has shaped what you're doing now or shaped your after Howard life, after Howard as an after undergrad life. I know you went back to do your MBA. We'll talk about that in a minute as well. So some general thoughts on how Howard shaped your career. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's always hard to distill this experience. You know, it's really hard to kind of in words find where exactly does this institution and my time in this institution, where did it exactly lead me? But there are a few things that I think really stand out. I mean, I was very fortunate and I think this will come as no surprise to many of your listeners. I was very fortunate. I graduated without debt from Harvard because I mentioned before I got this really great financial aid package. Um, That probably is the biggest difference that going to Harvard made for me. I, when I finished undergrad, I no longer had, I never had to worry about, you know, making a certain amount of money so I could pay it back um, in the form of loans. And that in and of itself was enormously freeing and really created space for me to take all different types of opportunities. So I think for that, I feel tremendously grateful um, and indebted to Harvard. I think that I didn't even appreciate as an undergrad just how amazing that was. I always knew it was a really good thing, but I didn't really understand just how freeing that was. Um, I think the other thing that Harvard gave me, and I, I'm reluctant to say this as I'm about to, <laughs> um, but I, I think it gave me uh, a certain degree of confidence that, sure. you know, especially after, right after undergrad, when you're still kind of exploring, you're exploring the ideas of careers, you're exploring what are you interested in, you're still exploring your values. I, I could kind of take different risks and not worry as much that I was, you know, t- making a misstep. Because even if I did take a misstep, you know, I wasn't worried that folks were going to somehow think that I had, that I wasn't, you know, capable or I hadn't, you know, done the right things. I, I could always kind of fall back on the idea of saying, okay, well, I, you know, I just finished university. This is a well-known university. Um, sure. You know, folks will understand that even if I've done something a bit obscure <laughs> or something that didn't quite pan out, um, that things are going to be okay. And so for me, that was really freeing as well. So I took kind of a pretty, a pretty fun and unexpected turn right after undergrad, I, I got a fellowship my senior year mm-hmm. to study and move to Ireland, um, where I got to actually do a degree, a master's degree that was entirely taught through the Irish language and focused on the very questions that I had explored in my undergrad thesis. Right. So I got to write another thesis about that, um, which was great, but also just getting to live I lived in rural Ireland for a while. I lived out in an Irish-speaking community. I went to mm-hmm. Irish-speaking university. I just had a very kind of unexpected, very different from your standard Harvard undergrad kind of post-grad plans. Just found myself in this really new world um, and, and spent you know almost a couple of years there. Came back to the United States, kind of was curious about a number of things, was specifically curious about the relationship between language and technology. Uh-huh. Felt like I had kind of answered the language questions or at least gotten closer on them, but didn't really feel like I knew about technology yet. So was able to then find a job that honestly, <laughs> you know, had I had student loans, I wouldn't have been able to afford it. Sure. Um, but a job kind of working early on in, in the kind of intersection between advocacy and technology, which then took me back to Ireland. I worked in venture capital for a couple of years um, and then came back to Harvard for my MBA. But 
and all of that might sound very linear kind of when I describe it now, but it certainly didn't feel that way at the time. Um, and I think again, this freedom to feel like I could kind of fail safely <laughs> made all of those different steps uh -huh. feel like they, they could happen and I could take them and I was a lot less concerned about doing so. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know if that's a direct answer to how, how Harvard influenced my career, but it certainly between undergrad and grad school gave me, you know, as a, as a institution, it gave me incredible license to explore and to try new things and to make mistakes. And that um, was, was very freeing and very, very cool. Oh, that's, that's tremendous, actually. I mean, just that ability to fail, you know, the, the license to fail, not, not for the sake of failing, but for, you know, trying things that are uh, maybe adventurous or uh, risky. And you learn so much. Yeah. Yeah, and you, and you learn so much from failure. Absolutely. So I do have a question um, about this. So, you know, I listened to you and the passion meter goes up when you talk about languages and linguistics. And then I see that you went and did an MBA. Why did you think an MBA was important at that point? Yeah, this was, this was an interesting decision and one that I, I have kind of, in 2021, I have some hindsight on, but um, I'll tell you where I was, how I thought about sure. it when I was 24, 25. Sure. Um, you know, so I had gone to grad school right after undergrad right. um, and, and realized there that, you know, the next logical step, if I had wanted to stay strictly on the language side of things, um, would have been to do some form of a PhD. Mm -hmm. But I honestly didn't feel like financially that was a good choice for me. I didn't feel like that was an environment where I was going to really be challenged in the same mm -hmm. way. And, and I felt like the questions that I was exploring in undergrad and grad school I could keep exploring them as a, as a PhD, but I actually got really curious about, well, you know, I worked in a few other spaces. I, like I said, I specifically worked in venture capital right. where, um, you know, I was working with founders of startups, early, very early stage startups. And I was really blown away by just how impervious they were. <laughs> um, you know, they, they really, these folks were so educational for me because they just refused to accept the status quo and they, just worked so hard at changing what the world looked like. I got really curious about the skills you need to do that. Um, and I kind of compared that to what I saw happening uh, in the language policy space where there was kind of a, it, it felt to me, I don't know, I'm sure folks who are more active in it would disagree, but it felt to me very paralyzed where there was an academic world that kept looking into these topics. It was kind of ivory tower. Yeah. The folks who were actually interested in, preserving their language that belonged to their community were often left out of those discussions. And then there wasn't really the capacity in a lot of these different environments, both at the local level, but at the national level, there wasn't a great deal of capacity around this topic. Folks didn't necessarily know how to plan or implement or execute. And I certainly didn't either, <laughs> but I, I felt like an MBA was gonna be an interesting way to bridge the experiences I had had in venture capital um, with, like I wanted to kind of take uh -huh. those lessons, systematize them, formalize them, use like develop frameworks that I could bring with me to then apply to these other questions, these questions of language um, and, and language preservation. And so that's what motivated me to do the MBA in the first place. Um, 
I'll, I, you know, I think I got to the MBA program and realized that that was maybe a bit <laughs> high-minded for what your average <laughs> MBA program is actually trying to achieve. Um, but I got to learn that lesson in real time during my MBA. <laughs> so um, that was that was very interesting. And now I think I, I I think I would still make the same choice to to go and do my MBA, but I would approach it probably a bit sure, differently. Sure. If you were to go back to Harvard for the same four years, would you do it differently? Keep it the same? Yeah, I I've been thinking about this a little bit as as a lead up to this this interview, and you know it feels very um, self absorbed. <laughs> say I wouldn't change anything, <laughs> um, and I'm I'm sure if I was a bit closer to those four years than I am now, there would probably be some sore thumbs that stand out that I would remember. But honestly, you know, I think the only thing that I would do really differently, I think so. I came to Harvard and I was really focused mm-hmm. on achieving certain outcomes. Most of them were academic. Um, most of them were really tied to these specific mm-hmm. interests that I already had. Um, and honestly, the, the ability to go so in depth on them, I found really, sure. really rewarding. And I don't really regret that. But the trade-off, the trade-off that I had to make was that I don't feel like I got to spend quite as much time uh, exploring, especially academically, I felt like I explored in many other ways, but academically in particular, you know, I was so locked in to some of these mm-hmm. uh, very specific interests and I really threw myself into them, but it didn't create a ton of opportunity for me to try out uh, fields or questions or areas of, of interest that I, uh, that I didn't, you know, that I didn't get to follow up on those. And so I think if I could do something differently, I would have tried to protect more time for that exploration, for kind of the open-endedness of going to a class that you never thought you would take, but you end up loving. You know, I I would have loved more experiences like those as an undergrad. Now, looking ahead, um, based on all the stuff you've talked about and experiences that you've gone through, what would you tell a typical high schooler applying to college real soon? Um, what kind of advice would you give them? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think, you know, if someone has their sights set on a school like Harvard, you know, I think it gets so complex um, and folks have a tendency to really try to package and present themselves in a way that they think Uh these institutions will find appealing And I think my advice to the student who might feel like they're in that position of saying, okay, you know, I am who I am, but I have to kind of present that in a really, really specific way that might feel, you know, inauthentic to who I am. I would say that life is very short (laughs) and these institutions are, yes, you know, they are important. I am, like I said before, I'm very grateful that I got to attend Harvard, but it certainly wouldn't be worthwhile if I felt like I had to bury who I was just to have the mm-hmm. right application. And in fact, I tend to think that the, the applications that stand out and the, the profiles that stand out mm-hmm. are mm-hmm. the ones that are most authentic, right? So, you know, if someone has, let's say you have a super mm-hmm. obscure niche interest in the Irish language, I don't think yeah. it's going to hurt you to call that out for sure. Harvard, you know, or whatever school you're applying to. Um, you know, I think I think you owe it, A, to yourself, 
um, to make the right. most out of this one life that you have, um, this one opportunity to go to college for the first time, like you might as well study the things that are going to make you excited, the things that you care about. Um, so you owe it to yourself, but you also kind of owe it to these institutions. And what I mean by that is, I mean, you owe them nothing. They have more money than they ever need. But but what you owe them is sort of the, the chance to be like a fully present, vibrant version of yourself. You know, I think a lot of folks go to universities feeling very pressured, maybe from society, maybe from their family, maybe from friends to, let's say, do, right, right. Well, I'm just going to throw yeah. out like the pre-med, for example, or pre-law or whatever. Um, and that just doesn't actually map on to where they're at in their lives or what their interests or what their passions are. And I think, honestly, you, mm -hmm. you can kind of tell that from students, right? When you're, when you're sitting with someone who is in classes they hate, working on questions they don't care mm -hmm. about just because they think it's a stepping stone to this next state. I mean, I have two thoughts about that. One, you're miserable. Why are you so miserable? You don't have to do this to yourself too. Um, you know, <laughs> like it isn't a great experience for anybody. You're not going to make the friends you want. You're not going to like <laughs> ask the questions that you have. If you're, if you're just focused on kind of the next stepping stone, you'll never yeah. actually feel like you've finished the stepping stones until you take time to kind of like sit down on one and actually think, um, and so I think, you know, none, none of this advice is incredibly actionable for, for high school students applying, but I think I just want to underscore how important it is to kind of remain, I hate the cliche, but remain true to yourself or at least remain, keep that picture of what you're interested in in mind and, and try to skate towards that wherever possible. Um, again, because you owe it to yourself, but also because when you're at these institutions, you know, you're going to remember the people, you're going to love the people that you spend time with. And it would be such a shame to, to go to these places and not fully inhabit yourself so that those folks miss out on seeing you yeah. and what that's, makes that's you really well said, actually. Um, there is always the risk of trying to be somebody else to get there. And uh, uh, that's not what you want. Okay, so Connor, um, we are nearing the end of our podcast and it's a time I generally like to just ask if you want to say something more about some of the things we've talked about or something we haven't covered or some, you know, traditions that you want to highlight from your Howard days. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think my favorite, memory or one of my favorite memories from Harvard um, kind of goes back to uh, what I talked right. about earlier when I was mentioning the housing system. So every year their um, freshmen are told all on the same day, all at the same time, mm -hmm. what house they've been placed into. Um, and you don't know until the morning that it, it kind of becomes officially announced mm -hmm. and what the various houses do is they organize committees that run through the freshman dorms and announce to each dorm room and each student uh -huh. what house they've been placed into. And it's probably my favorite tradition at Harvard for so many reasons. One, it's incredibly joyful. It's, a, it's an exciting day if you're a freshman. Uh -huh. It's a very fun day if you're an upperclassman. You know, this, the house experience is so, so vital. Um, and so you will wake up at like six in the morning to hundreds of college students 
who have gathered, usually they're all wearing like matching t-shirts and their faces might be painted and they, you know, uh -huh. might, there might be crazy costumes and things like that. Um, making a tremendous ruckus, uh -huh. a tremendous ruckus in Harvard Yard um, to wake up <laughs> all of these very, very nervous freshmen where you run and you slam on their door and like 50 people kind of jam into your into your dorm room all to tell you that you're now part of this house, which is a totally <laughs> random thing that you had no say in, but you can't help but get excited about it. And it's, you know, it's an absolutely electric day. And I think it's one of the days where Harvard feels the most open, the most excited, the most inclusive that it ever feels because everyone's in a house. Everybody gets put in a house. Everybody, you know, has a chance to be welcomed into that house. And, you know, like I said, maybe down the road, you end up really feeling like you're part of that community or you don't. But in that moment, you know, everyone has this shared unified experience and it's an absolute cacophony, um, which is just how I like my experiences, like loud, fun and messy. And that is entirely what it is. So I think that's probably my favorite tradition sure. at Harvard. We did it four times um, and it was it was wonderful every time. So I oh, think that's that I think sounds that fantastic. Really so, Connor, um, thank you so much for all the stories and the detail and the vividness. And uh, it's been truly a pleasure. And I love the passion with which you recounted all those stories. So thank you again. And I'm sure we'll want to talk more, but for now, take care, be safe. Thank you so much. You too. Thank, Bye. Thank you so much. Be well. Hi again. Hope you enjoyed our podcast with Connor Walsh about Harvard. Connor likens going to Harvard to being at a ginormous waterfall with a small bucket. But Connor was able to pack quite a few things in that small bucket. He stayed true to his love for languages and majored in linguistics with a thesis on Irish language policy. He rolled up his sleeves at the homeless shelter tutored high school kids, tried his hand, maybe I should say feet, at South Asian dances. He even managed to squeeze a trek through the Himalayas, tracing Buddhist monasteries. I hope Connor's story details how he was able to tap into Harvard's enormous resources and convert them into opportunities. For your questions or comments on this podcast, please email podcast at almamatters.io. Thank you all so much for listening to our podcast today. Transcripts for this podcast and previous podcasts are on almamatters.io forward slash podcasts. To stay connected with us, subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, or visit anchor.fm forward slash almamatters to check us out. Till we meet again, Take care and be safe. Thank you.